good morning, Shelby Doyle. So happy to talk to you today on our podcast. You're with National uh, School Choice Week. And I think um, a lot of folks don't even know about School Choice Week or why we need to have School Choice Week. So please just take a couple minutes and fill us in on what is School Choice Week? Why do why does it exist? And what do people um, how do people benefit from it? Yeah. So National School Choice Week was started in 2011 as a public awareness effort to connect parents with the information that they need and can use about choosing a school for their child. So we've worked for the last 13 years with traditional public schools, public charter schools, public magnet schools, private schools, online learning environments, homeschoolers, and now learning pods and micro schools. If there's a type of school out there, we work with them. The mission of the week is to, through local events at these education options, and then bigger conversation starting events that happen at state capitals or in big city school fairs, we want parents to realize that this is the right time of year to start thinking about a school if they want to choose for next fall and to make that process as streamlined as possible for them by having these events that they can attend or just creating a bit of momentum behind exploring the options. Yeah, I want to put a pin in that timing thing for a quick minute here. But, you know, um, I used to be at the National Center for Education Statistics and the federal government does this survey every couple of years called the National Household Education Survey. And some of the questions are, does your uh, what type of school does your child attend? And it's like public assigned, public chosen, private and then type of private and homeschool. And um, that's been going on since at least the early 90s. And in the earliest versions of this survey, 82, 83% of parents answered public assigned. It's just like everyone just went to their assigned public school based on your address and everyone alive was so used to this concept and it just made sense. If you wanna change schools, you have to move. And um, then there's a follow-up question on, did you pick where you live based on the schools? And a large percentage of people said yes. Well. That has changed over time. In the latest version of it, we're down below 70%. So like two thirds of parents now answer assigned public school. But then when you ask, did you move to the neighborhood for the school? Some portion of those people say yes. So what I really love about this evolution in our system of education is that the newest generation of parents might've been parents whose parents chose their school, right? So we're sort of building this like systemic change in where you don't just look up your address and see what school your kindergartner is going to be assigned to. You as a parent need to, if you have a four-year-old, start gathering information about what kindergarten you want your child to go to. And I mean, don't you think that's just a great development? Yeah, it really has been. It's been fun to watch um, doing this work. I've been on the team for eight years and just the level of common sense that this has become to people, I think has changed a lot. Um, of course, you know, you're always going to see a, a quorum or at least a plurality of people who are going to keep choosing their assigned public school. And for the reasons that are mixed, including what you just mentioned, which is that they bought a house um, intending to send their kid to that school, which we just did a survey on as well. Um, it had some interesting findings there that very much align with that. You know, the majority of people say that they very much considered what school they'd be zoned for when they chose to live wherever they live, which uh, it's, you know, I think obvious, but at the same time, sort of crazy if you take a step back and think about it. Right. Um, but no, I'm excited to see parents think about that more, more fully. I think for my generation, so I'm a millennial, the idea that everyone does anything one particular way feels a little <laughs> archaic. Um, sure. And so it feels very natural to be like, oh yeah, of course I would think about 
the different ways that might make sense for me. I'm not just going to take what's handed to me without any questions. It's not really not really how we've been known to go about things. <laughs> sure. And I think uh, millennials and Gen Z, of course, uh, will always pick more choices over fewer choices. I mean, this like assignment thing, I feel feels like pretty uh, incongruent with how life is now, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, we're the disruptors, right? Allegedly. Um, and that means <laughs> taking a, a suspicious look at anything that is, has always been done a certain way. It might, might be done that way for a good reason, but we don't go in with this, you know, pedestal like mentality that of course that would work perfectly for us if it's worked for someone else before. All right, we'll do it. So they, we've got some States now like Arizona and West Virginia that have just said, you know what? Any parent of any child can take their state money anywhere they want to go, essentially. And do you think that that is going to sort of spread across the country? <clears throat> I think it's very possible. I think those are going to be important test cases that people will be watching. So let's let's see how that goes. I'm hoping and rooting for the best for them. I think they have a great chance of implementing these things very well. One of the things that I've been particularly interested in over the last few years is we have seen these expanses, expansions in so many types of school choice. There's getting that policy in place and then there's implementing it and communicating about it in a way that parents really benefit from and that everybody's on the same page about. And that's just as important as the policy to begin with. So I I think so far, those both of those states and the organizations in them have done a great job of communicating with parents. You can see that in how many parents have applied for that Arizona ESA. Um, I'm really hopeful that those turn into fantastic test cases that other states can point to and say, hey, this isn't a crazy, you know, out there idea. This has been tried in the state and here's how it went. Yeah. And, and the opposition would say it's going to kill public education as we know it. And I think we will find out five to 10 years from now that public education is alive and well in Arizona and in West Virginia. Well, not only that, but you know, Arizona public schools have not been the only option parents have had for quite some time now That's you right. know, with, between unrestricted open enrollment, charter schools. There were already several private school choice programs in place, magnets online and homeschooling. Parents already were doing a lot of other things in Arizona. It's not like we went from zero to 60. So I think no, that's, that's an important piece of context. Uh, 30 years ago, they were the wild west of charter schools and <laughs> districts could charter school in a different district. And yeah, they went really big, really fast. And now they've had to fix like how big they went in some cases. But I do think, you know, I have friends with kids who live in Arizona and this idea of, you know, I have a one friend with four kids and she looked at like four different schools for her four different kids because she really thought about tailoring it. Ultimately, a couple of them went together just for logistical reasons. But I mean, this idea that you really could tailor the experience of each child based on that child's needs. Uh, we did a podcast. I did a podcast just recently with Caricia Spivey of also about expanding the National School Choice Week. Uh, making it accessible for Hispanic families. And she said she has twins and they're both different, right? So this idea that not every kid is made the same, I think is finally settling into even lawmakers. But that is, you know, what I wanted to go back to with Missouri is we have a tendency to sort of want to get our foot in the door. Legislators who are supportive of school choice are like, well, we'll just take this sort of like, eh, not great version of school choice, but we'll take it because then we can fix it. And rather than what Arizona did, we like start really small and a little, little cobbled up and then we try to fix it. And I would really prefer to start with the really solid, good policy, but things like our open enrollments coming up this session, the bill that's about to be heard first, 
parents have to apply for open enrollment by December 1st. Who's making that decision in the fall? Isn't every parent thinking, well, well, first semester, terrible. Let's see how it goes after Christmas. And then in the spring, if it's still terrible, we'll decide. Yeah, um, I I can tell you that that's absolutely what parents are doing in terms of timeline, because as hard as we try to make it happen in January, a lot of parents do think about it in January through sheer force of will and creating a week of public awareness in January. However, the traffic to our site is almost as high in August every year as it is in January, because that's when parents actually see you know, the writing on the wall, they're talking about sending their kid back to school, their kid is telling them, I can't go back there this year. And that's when they start to think about where they want to go. So while August may not be super realistic, December the year before is also not. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm concerned that our our law is going to be voluntary, which means that districts don't have to accept students, which is just like not having a law. If districts can opt out, you know what I mean? Then it's like, uh, of course, the high, higher performing districts now, what what I found with open enrollment looking into it is the research is pretty clear that for the most part, parents move from low performing to high performing, right? It's not necessarily low money to high money or the students are low income and these students are more middle and upper income. It's low performing to high performing. Which, why shouldn't they? I would do. Of course, right? Um, but- Uh, To your point, yeah, states with voluntary open enrollment provisions at the statewide level that have these district or even school-based policies, that is so hard for parents to navigate. You have to get a hold of someone at that school or at that district in two places where you're leaving and where you're going and get their buy-in in order for you to do anything. And you have to hope that the person you talk to really knows the open enrollment provisions that are in place there. And we get questions from parents all the time who are like, I tried to read up about my state's open enrollment and I received basically no information because there's no state-based policy. And I've been calling my school or my school district. They're not getting back to me. And it just becomes really hard for parents to find out what that would look like for them without really, really putting time and energy into it. Yeah, we kind of did this with the virtual law where it became a law that a district would pay for virtual education for any student couple years before the pandemic, but uh, in the initial years of the implementation, parents were applying to have their students be full-time and they were being denied. And the district, and then in some cases, you know, the parents had to get attorneys. And in some cases, the district said, well, if your child's going to learn online, they have to come to school and learn online, right? They just made it like really hard for parents to actually, and then there was one district in the state that created an online learning academy. And they said, well, if you're going to have your child be online, they have to go to this school. Like they wanted to make the choice for which online school. And we've had really a hard time sort of uh, working around superintendents who think that they know what this kid needs more than the parent knows what the kid needs. And I think the the money part, you know, every child has money attached and with open enrollment or virtual or chart, whatever, parent chooses something else, they take the money with them. So what, you know, what do you think is the best way for states to address, you know, getting past the, the bias against school choice on the part of the, you know, air quotes system? <laughs> Uh, I wish I had. Tell me, Shelby, what's your solution? (laughs) Yeah, I wish I had a a perfect answer for that. One thing that I think 
um, you know, especially in states like Missouri, like you're talking about that have a little bit of everything, but not a lot of anything. That's right. I think it's so helpful for school choice to in the state, you know, the organizations that run each of these little sort of fiefdoms of different types of choice. It's really helpful for them to work together. The it feels like at least in the the time I've been in this movement, the almost decade I've been watching this, the there's the, the political wins around like one type of choice or another, which one's seen as progressive, which one's seen as regressive, you know, that really changes a lot of the time. And there's sort of a safety in being like, nope, it's it's all of us or nothing. Like we are all in this together because I have seen in states where those coalitions fracture that might seem beneficial to you this year because, you know, people have decided they don't like this type of choice this year. But next year, when that's in favor and you've burned that bridge, what do you have? Um, and so I think, you know, of course, this is my opinion because the organization I work for really believes in all of these. I do think there's a real benefit in people standing together and saying that the the same reason that we think our type of choice matters is what animates all the types of choice, which is that if a parent wants to choose this, they we believe that they have a good reason and are the expert on their kid. And we think that's a valid reason to choose a school. And that applies across the board. That's right. I mean, what we've had happen in Missouri is they'll, they'll put together a pretty good school choice program, like our recent education scholarship account program or ESA program. It's tax credit funded. It's pretty good, but they limited it to communities of 30,000 people or more, which is not very many communities in Missouri, just to like protect rural communities from school choice as though it's an evil. <laughs> you know what I mean? That you don't want that in your backyard. And it's just like such a good thing for parents. And the program only applies to low-income students and students with disabilities. So they're like, not for our low-income students. Do we want this program? And that's a, you know, politics is what it is but to get things to happen sometimes you end up with you know a, a program that's harder to go back and fix when they're like well you got it why are you complaining about it? you got the thing um so that's a very frustrating thing so anyway turning to school choice week how many like what do you guys have going on this week it's in starts january 22nd so not next week but the week after i know you've got stuff going on in jefferson city and across the state but uh what are the types of things that if a parent's interested in finding out more about school choice that they could maybe engage in during that week? Yeah. So Missouri is maybe top state in the nation in terms of big flagship events. There's something large going on with the virtual schooling community in Missouri with a charter school day and then also with um, private schools and online learning under SEAM. Um, and that's just the big flagship events, not the individual school events happening in Missouri. So for all of the <laughs> policy changes we've been talking about, Missouri really is excited about school choice and school choice week, which is fun to see. Yeah. Um, for the for a typical parent, what I would recommend if you're interested in seeing what's going on this week is head to our website at schoolchoiceweek.com. We've got state pages and on those state pages, we round up all the events happening, whether those big events that I mentioned or a local event to you. Um, so we work with 26,000 event planners across the country. Some of these are in, you know, in school activities. Some of these are open to the public. Um, so it's very case by case. And the ones that are open to the public and that we've been told details about, we make sure are available on our website for parents. So I would definitely start there. And of course, if you need help, our team would be happy to help. Then do I, can I put in my zip code and find an event or something like that? <clears throat> yeah. Well, the events are rounded up by state, um, but you can... Oh, gotcha. We do have a school finder to put in your zip code and find the schools near you, which you can always contact during school choice week, whether or not they have something planned. They're always interested in hearing from a prospective family. 
What do you find is the biggest blind spot when it comes to school choice with parents? Not not with everybody who has an opinion politically, but like with parents, what's the biggest blind spot? Well, <laughs> this might be a borderline hot take. Uh, at least in the the people I talk to, the parents' blind spot that I hear the most is people who don't think other parents need school choice because they didn't. Um, <laughs> that frustrates me to hear. And a lot of times those people had the means to move to a neighborhood with a school that they wanted, or they happen to live somewhere that has better school choice policies than the person they're talking about. Sure. And it frustrates me to hear people be so dismissive of genuine concerns parents have for their kids just because that wasn't their specific experience. I think we can all be a little bit more empathetic than that, or I would at least hope we can be. Sure. I mean, so in Missouri, uh, the way our charter school law is written is basically in the lowest performing districts, the non-accredited, which we don't have any of anymore, (laughs) out of 550 (laughs) districts, we have 500 and I don't know, 45 are fully accredited. It's a ridiculous system where everyone just got an A, but we have some provisionally accredited, but ended up only just the city of St. Louis and Kansas City could easily open charter schools because of their low performance. So it was like punishment. So, you know, I think across the state, when I started this work, which was five or six years ago in Missouri, there was a lot of like, well, we don't need charter schools. We have good schools. But the poor kids and the poor minority kids in St. Louis and Kansas City, yeah, let's make sure they have them. But we don't need them, right? Because we have air quotes, good schools. And it's like, you know, you've articulated this quite well. But I know like in Florida, if you have a child who's bullied, I hear parents who say they're school's too big, the school's too small. I hear that they don't like the arts offerings or the sports offerings or the or the STEM offerings. Or during the last few years, parents didn't like the mask mandates or lack thereof, vaccine mandates lack thereof. Now in Missouri, one thing that is starting to set off a lot of parents or maybe make them happy is a, a fifth of our school districts are four days now. And I've been contacted by parents who are like, apparently my school district's got to go to four days and I work five days and I don't know what to do. Can they just do that to us? And I'm like, yeah, unless you have a choice to go somewhere else. In fact, they can just do that. Or redistricting schools. Parents get very mad about redistricting. You know, like we're going to take all the kids in this part of the elementary school and move them over to this elementary school. And um, just being treated that way is, I've just named seven reasons why a parent might want to choose a school. And then people are, you know, I feel like, on the soccer fields on Saturday, they're like, knock wood, we, we, our kids go to great schools. And it's like, well, maybe for your kid, <laughs> you know, not for everyone in the building, I promise you. Yeah. Well, that's the, I, I think you raised this point that is so important is in a lot of cases, parents who want school choice may not even think there's anything inherently wrong with the school they want to leave. We just did a survey this month and the majority of parents, like the 60% majority of parents are satisfied with the school that their child was assigned, even as they're considering new options. So it's not that they're saying the school they're leaving is just like a horrible place. No one should send their kid. That's not the case at all. They are saying, I think this is a fine school because I want a higher quality education, because I'm concerned about school safety, because I need just a better fit for my kid who has some unique needs or challenges. I still want to know and consider sending them somewhere else. And when we make it where, oh, well, no one would need to choose a school unless the one they're assigned to is horrible, that's just like a false choice. Um, And it's not how parents actually feel. They think that school is fine, but I think my kid can be in a better place for them. And that's what I want. Sure. So what do you see on the horizon for school choice? 
I know pods. I mean, we're going to do a podcast about pods in a week <laughs> or so. Um, what do you see? Yeah. I, I see these surveys that parents want their kids home like one day a week or two days a week, which I think is fascinating. They're like not every day, but <laughs> not gone every. I like to see a little. I don't want to see everything. So what do you see on the horizon? Yeah, two things. One of them is this pod or micro school or just generally reformatted type of schooling. Um, I think it's such an interesting conversation. We're also figuring out the nomenclature and exactly how we're going to frame it and categorize it. Really, to me, the thing that people care about when it comes to pods and micro schools is not so much what type of school it is, but the format of the day or week of schooling. That's something parents want to think about, change, modify, customize, um, which makes sense to me because the, well, the traditional five day a week school day hasn't been the right length of time for most working parents for quite some time. And then you've got summers off when people aren't really harvesting crops anymore. Um, so there's there's lots of uh, room for change in the actual format and the schedule at which kids go to school. And I think that's what you're really seeing behind the pod movement. But number two, I think the big thing that we're going to see people talk about, or I hope we do in the school choice world, is transportation, which Arizona's done a great job leading the way on. Emily Ann Gulickson and A for Arizona and other folks in that state have really made a point of focusing on how transportation can be a barrier to choice. Um, we just did a survey this month that I, I keep mentioning, but we found that for parents, when we say, if cost wasn't an option, would you choose a school? If transportation was handled for you, would you choose a school? transportation is actually more of a barrier for parents choosing than cost from sure. what they said. And you just don't hear that conversation going on a ton um, in a lot of states when they talk about school choice. But if you have multiple kids, <laughs> you have to do something other than drive them places. That's it right. really matters. <laughs> That's right. Well, Show Me Institute is going to be talking about that a little bit this year. Um, it's in our plans. I, I When you mentioned A plus for education in Arizona, I know that they have like a like a grant program where they're trying to help create great ideas. And I've seen some of the grantees are doing things like vans or smaller buses that have Wi-Fi that have maybe uh, a paraprofessional, like maybe not a teacher, but maybe somebody who can on the bus help with homework. Right. And there's Wi-Fi. So it's like not, you're just not getting on a bus and sitting and let, being bullied by older kids for 35 minutes, right? So you can <laughs> sort of change how you use that time. And also uh, having like shuttle routes, um, St. Louis, in my neighborhood, uh, Washington University shuttles run constantly. <laughs> they go on my street constantly, but like shuttle routes of smaller vehicles so that you can uh, not just have one pickup time, one drop-off time, things like that. But uh, they're thinking outside the box about transportation in Arizona. They're generating a lot of great ideas in order to create things that other groups might be able to scale up. And I, that's the kind of innovation that I, I really want to see. And I also think I've been looking into this in Missouri. Uh, I just anecdotally, I rode the bus. My kids rode the bus till high school when they were very, very happy to not ride the bus. But <laughs> Younger people I know and younger parents, their kids aren't riding the bus. They're driving them to school. So we're looking at ridership. Ridership, I think, used to be around 50 to 60% of kids in Missouri. It's down below 40%. And that's not the pandemic year. That's the year after the pandemic. And I think this school year, we're down to where, for whatever reason, kids are doing different things than riding the bus. Uh, you also can have centralized bus stops, you know, kiss and ride lots or park and ride. You know what I mean? You can have things that are not 
or you could reimburse parents by the amount. I mean, there's all kinds of ideas around transportation that I don't think we've even touched on, but you're right. That's the tail wagging the dog where people will say, well, we can't have this great policy for parents because of buses. And it's like, we, we're smarter than that. Yeah, we can surely, work that out. <laughs> surely that is not going to bring all of this innovation to a screeching halt. Surely. Not when Uber Eats can get to my house. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, we can figure this one out. There's, mm-hmm. is, there's gotta be, I, I, many, many people across the country have watched a video in the last week of a bus full of dogs in Alaska, but like, we can figure this out. We cannot let that be the stopping point. Now, I'm always a little suspicious, suspicious because I've worked in more political environments and in DC. And I was suspicious of the bus lobby, the yellow bus lobby. But, you know, I think if we allow people to think more creatively, we also are going to be looking at show me Institute. We're going to be looking into this idea that rural um, folks throw out a lot that our high schools are so far apart that if you wanted to go outside your district, you'd have to drive an hour. I don't think it's true. It is my intention to figure that out, but I know the Brookings Institute five or so years ago did a study and and like the majority of students live within five miles of a school in a different district. I, I don't want to say the numbers, I'll be wrong, but they did like one mile, five miles and 10 miles. And it was surprising the percentage of students who could get to another school within like five to 10 miles. So these are two myths, the bus thing and the distance thing that I think we have allowed to control the narrative. Yeah. Well, and so not that I'm necessarily saying I would want this personally, but you look at states like Idaho, for instance, that have really robust open enrollment policies. Idaho is a rural state. It might take an hour to get to another school. There are still families who use that policy and are happy to use it. So let's not tell people what they want. Let's figure out what they actually want and need and then look at meeting that as opposed to the other way around. That's right. And I think there's plenty of bus rides that are an hour. Mm-hmm. Because this idea that we have one bus with 80 seats, we have to get to every kid's house and then get to, you know what I mean? There are, there are plenty. And so I, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because that is something that we need to be, we need to recognize that we are smarter than this in 2023, that we can't let the bus thing trip us up. Um, one thing I did want to go back to the National School Choice Week events in Missouri. You said SEAM is doing them. And just for listeners, that's the Children's Educational Alliance of Missouri. And they also have a really good website for parents. They they really focus on getting information out to parents um, where parents in Missouri can find out about the options that are available to you if you live in a few very fortunate select communities. <laughs> 90% of the state don't worry about it. You have one option, which is your assigned public school and uh, virtual. But um, but for, so for folks in some communities, there are options. And, and our ESA program was early, like fully subscribed. I mean, we had lots of folks who wanted to participate in that program. So there's no issue on the supplies, the demand side. But this, I kind of want to wrap up with this. What do you see or do you have any concerns in states like Arizona and West Virginia and these sort of like really open systems about the supply side? A lot of folks say a bunch of bad schools are going to open. Yeah, well, we don't want kids to go to schools that don't work for them. Uh, that's the problem we're trying to solve <laughs> in creating <laughs> school choices, right? So that still is a concern. I think it's intellectually honest to realize that that's always worth checking for. In my opinion, I do think the most effective accountability is parents. Um, I don't think that's the only, you know, that's not a sufficient condition, but I think it's very necessary. Um, And I think parents know if their kids are getting the kind of education they want or not. And it's really easy to do a lot of math and think you can 
tell if a parent should be happy somewhere. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that can be pretty condescending. I think families have all sorts of different reasons they want or need things. We see this even in, in talking about, you know, failing public schools. The public outcry when a public school has not performed in decades and is finally on the chopping block um, to be transitioned or to be, you know, taken over and improved, people feel very attached to their local institutions. So I think it's important on both sides of the issue to listen to parents. If they are wanting to send their kids somewhere, let's at least find out the reason before we tell them they shouldn't want that anymore. Um, because I really do think parents care more about their kids than we do or any bureaucrat ever will. And there's something to learn from them if that's how they truly feel. That's awesome. Okay. Again, schoolchoiceweek.org.com.com. No, old school. (laughs) Schoolchoiceweek.com. Thank you so much, Shelby. I really appreciate you taking the time. I think a a lot of Missouri parents need this information. I'm glad that there's a place they can get it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me and happy School Choice Week. Yeah. Head to schoolchoiceweek.com if you want to know about your options or what's happening near you. Thanks.